All right, welcome back to Alpaca My Bags. Um, so now in part two, we're going to talk a little more specifically about immigration. So to premise this convo, I want to expand the stereotypical definition of travel. So obviously, like it can mean trips of various lengths to different countries, but it can also mean a day trip in your own city. This is something we've talked about before, um, but it can also mean moving to another country. And um, interestingly, humans have always traveled and always for different motivations. But one of the most constant motivations throughout time has been moving to escape um, or out of necessity. So by this I mean people will move because of war or because of food shortage, um, various reasons. And that's veering more into the immigration realm, where it's a move out of need. What I'm getting at here is that immigration is a sort of travel. It's not travel for leisure though, it's travel out of necessity. So in the context of homesickness, immigration is super relevant because when you immigrate, you're leaving knowing that you likely won't return to your homeland permanently. Um, this doesn't really relate to you though because like as we mentioned before, you weren't sure if you were gonna go back or not and you didn't move out of necessity. But you are still like, would you think of yourself as an immigrant? Yeah, I don't know. Um, no, I don't, like, what is an immigrant then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what is an immigrant? And, and something that's, like, in, in the language that we use for these things, uh, that's something that's come up for me a lot. Like, when I hear kind of, when I hear people who are usually, like, white and from, like, Europe or, or North America be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an expat. And, like, this whole expat language. Right. It's just like, oh, like, what makes an expat an expat and an immigrant an immigrant? And why, and why the difference in language? And maybe there's this, like, a very straightforward explanation. And if you're listening and you have it, like, please share because I don't yeah. really know. I would imagine that it would be interesting to talk to someone who, like, does self-identify as an immigrant. Because, like, what I'm getting is that you don't or you're not sure. But I definitely have met people who are like, yes, absolutely, I'm an immigrant. Mm-hmm. For sure. I would assume that the difference is, like, an expat is more out of leisure. Like, when I was living in the Netherlands, people would call me an expat, but that wasn't permanent. Mm -hmm. And that was by choice. Whereas, like, an immigrant, I think, usually is... But the thing is, it is still a choice for a lot of immigrants. They're choosing which country they're going to move to. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like in a textbook definition, yes, I I am an immigrant, mm. and I like I I had a choice in in moving, but in in a sense, it did feel, and I don't want to say it was necessary. Like I don't want to make it sound like it was necessity in the way that maybe people inter- interpret, but I did really, in a sense, I did really feel like I needed to move. Uh, I felt very constrained in in my movements and in my ability to move around Mexico City or to have a sense of freedom there. That like I kept coming against walls, be it traffic or be it safety or be it whatever. I just felt like I needed more space, hmm. um, which is it, it was it felt draining. So so I did feel I, I moved looking for kind of a breath of, of fresh air, which. I mean, I don't know. Is that necessity? Is it not? I, 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 I'm I think not it sure. Is. I mean, when I moved to the Netherlands, I went because I thought it would be fun. Like, mm-hmm. that's very different. It wasn't because, like, there was anything I was trying to escape or anything that was making me unhappy or feel 
like I needed to leave. Mm-hmm. It was purely because I thought it would be fun, which to me is like very squarely in the expat mm-hmm. definition. Yeah. Yeah, but but then again like with this conversation about immigration and I I also I'm hesitant to use the language because I I recognize that I have a ton of privilege in how I moved here uh and I have you know I'm I I look very European and people just assume that I'm Canadian and I and I'm I'm very Canadian passing mm-hmm. and I like in groups, if I tell somebody that I'm not from here, usually what I get is surprise. You know, like, oh, what? I never thought you weren't from Canada. That's what That's you got what from you me. Said. <laughs> <laughs> when I met you, I was like, no way. <laughs> yeah. So when you're hearing that over and over, um, that's probably why, like, it's, that's probably why I, this language around immigration hasn't felt like a daily kind of conversation for me or, or a daily thing that I come come into mm. or, or, or have to work with. So so maybe that's why? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Toronto has a lot of immigrants, so I'm going to throw out some statistics now, so forgive me if I sound like I'm reading, because I am. Um, according to Statistics Canada, the, the latest data I could get was from 2016 for some reason, but as of 2016, 46% of Toronto residents were immigrants being defined as immigrants. So that would be interesting to ask StatsCan, like how they define that. Um, And these immigrants are from over 230 different nationalities. Toronto is consistently named as one of the world's most diverse cities. For example, Culture Trip names Toronto as in the world's top 10 most diverse cities. And it notes that over 140 different languages and dialects are spoken within Toronto. And I think my lived experience in Toronto definitely supports this because half the people I know are either immigrants themselves or like the child of immigrants. Uh, And even I myself am a second generation Canadian. Um, So it's definitely a denominator amongst urban Canadians. But I'm noting urban Canadians because this is not the case. If you leave like Canadian cities, a lot of the like more rural parts of Canada are, are less diverse. Um, so I'm curious, did you know this about Toronto when you moved here? Or if not, like, well, you've kind of touched on this, but what was it about Toronto that you were like, okay, that's, that's my next city? Mm-hmm. I actually didn't know, know this. And, um, like, uh, as soon as I moved here, here, I, well, I noticed like, oh, this is definitely more diverse than, than Victoria and then in Montreal in, in some ways. Um, it was actually when my mom came to visit for my birthday, uh, which was in September, she came and, and we were walking down like Young Street or something. At one point, she turned to me and she's like, did you know that like over 40% of Torontonians are not from, like weren't born here or whatever? I don't know like what stats she gave me. And I was just like, oh, no, I didn't know that. And she's like, I read it on the plane. <laughs> Isn't it bright? <laughs> and so I learned it from my mom. Uh, and yeah, it is it is great. But then this brings up this other question, like when we're talking about Canadian identity and what it means to be Canadian like I think what's what's coming to mind for me is just like yeah what what is that especially in a city where where almost 50 percent of people are immigrants and also I think I've just kind of I think the language I've 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 learned to adopt for myself rather than immigrant is also the language of settler Mm -hmm. um and and yeah so that's kind of that's kind of what's come up for for me and um yeah, this idea of settling on, on traditional 
territories uh, of people who've been here for much longer than than immigrants or, or Canadians. And so so that's kind of what I've adopted and, and also something that's challenged even my understanding of my identity as a Mexican. Um, and what does it mean? You know, my family came from Europe and settled in Mexico. And, mm. and then, yes, I was born there, but, but does that make me a Mexican or does that make me a settler in Mexico? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not a conversation that's happening there in those terms. This is, this is a very Canadian conversation, but that's, yeah. that's kind of what I've, the language I've been using recently rather than a language of immigration. Absolutely. And I think that uh, younger generations in Canada, especially like in urban Canada, are becoming more cognizant of the fact that like really all of us are settlers. Um, a very small amount of the p- population is actually native to Canada. Um, so I'm just going to address this because I think a lot of our listeners might not actually know. So yeah, in Canadian cities, we try to acknowledge always that the land here is Aboriginal land, and it has been inhabited by Indigenous people from the beginning. Um, And so as settlers, which you've brought up as the term is we're using, and when we say settlers, we mean we are the people who immigrated here when Canada like became a country and took the land. So now Canadians are recognizing the importance of thanking generations of Aboriginal people who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. For a long time, this wasn't a big part of the Canadian discussion, like in general. But nowadays, Canadians are really recognizing that there's been a lot of systemic oppression against native Aboriginal Canadians. And nowadays, when we self-identify ourselves as settlers, that's what we mean is that like, yes, we're Canadian, but we're this newfound idea of Canadian, which is based on nationhood. Even this idea of any nationality being passport dependent or or the idea of nationhood is, is one that I've questioned. And I, at this point, and I may be getting kind of like bigger picture, but um, there's this really great video uh, slash talk that I've seen, which is, oh, who's it by? I think it's Chimamanda Adichie. She's, mm. a, she's a, an author. Yeah. And uh, she... Isn't she Nigerian? She's Nigerian, Yeah. yeah. And she's written she's written really beautiful books and short stories. My favorite one is called The Thing Around Your Neck. Yeah. But she also has a talk. I'm pretty sure it's her. I have to double check. Uh, but she speaks of like being local to, to somewhere as opposed to being like from a nation. She speaks to being local to a place, but like very like specific place. So, for example, I might I am local to Mexico City, and I'm local to. Um, Paris to some extent and I'm local to Toronto but that doesn't mean that I'm Mexican like Mm -hmm. because the differences actually from somebody from Mexico City and someone from somewhere else in Mexico City are huge and so what is it that connects those two people Mm -hmm. Uh, and what is it that connects somebody from um, you know downtown Toronto to to somebody you know I don't know like in Regina Uh, and so so this idea of, of nation is one that I struggle with. And this idea of passport and, and Canadian identity, especially when, when you're in a city that's so diverse and when you have a history like the one of Canada and a history of colonialism, just like, what does what does it mean? Mm. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. It's complicated. This has actually been written about so much because like no one knows the answer. Um, so to close this convo, I wanted to give a little disclaimer. Um, because obviously I'm Canadian born and I am white so I have a very privileged experience of Canadian life Um, and I worried about accidentally portraying Toronto like it is 
this beautiful, harmonious, diverse sanctuary. Um, but in reality, minorities here are subject to discrimination, which is often systemic. Um, I know that immigrating here can be very challenging, more so depending on your ethnicity and language. Um, and the reality is that anti-immigration narratives are alive and well in this country. Um, so I just felt that it was important to acknowledge that. And also to acknowledge that this land here in Toronto is Aboriginal land, um, and it's been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, it's important to thank all generations of Aboriginal people who've taken care of this land for thousands of years. And thank you for letting us meet on this land. a treat for me because I am heading to Mexico City in a couple months and I'm so excited. Um, I'm going there for Day of the Dead. Ooh, what nice. does this mean? Oh, Can nice. you tell everyone what Day of the Dead is? Uh, Day of the Dead is actually my favorite holiday uh, ever. <laughs> <gasps> what is it? Uh, so it's a it's a holiday it's a it's interesting because because the way uh, Mexico and Mexicans approach death and the way Canadians might approach it is so different. And uh, I have found in kind of North America and Europe to some extent, like death is this very sad, very dark thing, uh, often not really spoken about, often kind of an uncomfortable topic, which I totally understand. Like, you know, having somebody pass away is heartbreaking and, and is a difficult challenge. Mm. But Day of the Dead really provides an invitation to to think about death and people who have passed in this vibrant and colorful and warm way and and provides an opportunity for 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 you to remember and honor and share about a uh, loved one who, is, who have passed in this very fun um, way that that is just it's more celebratory. Yeah, it's celebratory, and it and it and it's you know you're not and it's not like I find like if people if somebody passes away here, um, you know you'll have you know a funeral maybe where where you share stories about them and where they're remembered, and then perhaps like on a yearly anniversary, like then you, you kind of talk about them. But but there's always kind of this sad quality to it, uh, and Day of the Dead offers a chance to remember this person and remember their stories and remember what they loved in a more celebratory fashion um, with with people who are around you. And so it's just, I just love the quality of, of the message of it and, and, and the, the depth of it. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, like something to note is just uh, death uh, is very present in Mexican culture just in many ways. And, and there's this kind of uh, desire to to laugh at death or to challenge it or to to not be afraid of it mm-hmm. that comes up in very cool ways and and you'll notice when you're there like this the one figure that that is very present for Day of the Dead is La Catrina and so it's this one skull and, and she's a very elegant woman so you'll often see the skull with like this big hat and like maybe a feather on it and <laughs> and she's all dressed up uh, and and she was actually created by a 
a man who made like like political commentary and and comics I guess are they called comics yeah uh, back in I think like the 1920s or something like that and he he made her uh, back at a time where, where inequalities were really starting to, to get run deep through Mexican society and so there's people getting very rich and people staying poor and he wrote that as social commentary saying like yeah, you may have all this money now and you may, you know, have these riches and have this elegant hat, but in death we are all the same. Oh. And so it's just kind of like a little diss to... to a little diss. <laughs> a little diss, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, she's, she's something that, yeah, she's someone who, who will come you'll up a lot that. and you'll see a lot of around. Cool. Um, I like this concept, too. Like, it's attractive to me because I had a friend pass away three years ago and it was very jarring and upsetting and like as you said like here it is a sad thing which it is but I have in my travels noticed that like death is treated really differently and one of the challenges I've found like since this friend of mine passed away is that after the initial year I would say one year you never know when it's okay to talk about that person anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I feel this urge sometimes to talk about him with, like, a friend or a partner, but, like, it feels uncomfortable. It doesn't feel like it's okay to mm-hmm. bring up that person because, like, it's going to bring up sadness. And Day of, Day of the Dead seems like a day that is dedicated to talking about those people every year, remembering them, honoring mm-hmm. them, and celebrating them. Mm-hmm. And because it's dedicated, like you know that it's okay to mm-hmm. talk about that person. And there's something really beautiful about that because I found it like really suffocating nowadays to like think about this person and want to talk about them, but feel I'm not invited to. And Dave mm-hmm. the Dead is like an invitation in a way. Definitely. Yeah, it's a huge invitation. And even just setting up the altar, like altars are a huge part of Day of the Dead and they also like are full of symbolism, which I could go into, but... Um, Where are they set up? In the home? Yeah, they're set up... They're, well, it depends. Like you'll, Some are set up in cemeteries themselves. Uh, some are like more kind of public... Um, altars might be set up in, in offices or in public spaces. For example, my sister works at an organization that deals with... Um, journalist safety and freedom of expression. So they will also always create an altar for journalists who have been killed that year or who have been killed generally. And so mm. so that's kind of what they do. But then in the home, uh, you would you would also set one up for, for like family and, and loved ones uh, yeah. of the home. Uh, but when you're doing that, like you're, the idea is to, like there's different elements that bring up different symbolisms like candles and, and like a glass of water and salt and like these kinds of things. But then you... You also are supposed to like cook a dish that that person loved, or, or put one of their objects down, or like put their favorite drink, and Aww. so that just like makes you remember them in this different way. And then you have the photo up, and 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 so it's just it's just a way of, of relating to to that person, and and remembering them, yeah, with that with that joyful closeness and, and making space for them to still be present, mm-hmm. like in your life, yeah, which is okay. But a lot of people suppress that here, I find, yeah. So what should we do on Day of the Dead? Mm. Mm. That's a tough one. Well, it depends where you are. Like, um, yeah, like smaller, smaller places, smaller towns. Uh, the Day of the Dead celebration will be, and 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 certain states also. Like, it's more, it's like bigger in, in certain areas of Mexico. So, so it depends where you are. But if you're in Mexico City, uh, the it's kind of weird. But they they've started doing. <laughs> A parade. I, I read know, about this. And I read weird. that it was weird because it was started for tourism. Yeah, well, it was started, like, not even for tourism, but I think, like, 
in the in one of the James Bond movies, which I didn't see, there's yes. a parade for Day of the Dead. Yeah. And this was never a thing. Like, there's never a parade. But then it was in this big Hollywood movie, and all of a sudden it was like, okay, I guess I'll have a parade now on Day of the Dead. <laughs> so I haven't actually been, because this is, like, maybe, like, two years old. I think they've had two. So I haven't been back uh, for that time of year since for a while. So maybe check out the parade. Like, it's probably cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> well, we were thinking, actually, of going to, like, a neighboring town. Yeah. Just, like, an hour or two outside of Mexico City and just, like, wandering around and, like, seeing what we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of beautiful neighboring towns uh, around Mexico. Uh, a lot of them have this denomination that they're called magical towns, like Pueblo Magico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So yeah, those those like I mean the ideas behind Pueblo Magico. I'm not sure like how they decide which ones are magic and which ones are not. I think somebody's told me before that it, it's whether or not there's like electrical wires or something like that in the <laughs> town. But I'm not sure. You'll have to fact check that. But there are lots of beautiful towns uh, like day trips away. Um, so what would you tell a tourist to do in Mexico City? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you're going. Uh, a lot of, I mean, there's so many direct fly, flights to just like very small beach towns. And so I think Mexico City gets bypassed a lot, which I get. Like you live in Canada, it's cold. You kind of want to go to the beach. Like I totally understand. Uh, but Mexico City is so amazing. And it, it's hard for me to tell, to kind of limit it to, to a few tips. Like, yes, there are so many neighborhoods that are just worth wandering around and exploring. And you'll notice neighborhoods have this very distinct character to them. Mm. Um, like ones that that I enjoy spending time in are like, well, the centro, the, the kind of historical center of it is has amazing um, buildings and architecture and uh, lots of amazing murals that you, you'd be able to see. A lot of murals by Diego Rivera. Uh, so, so that's definitely a neighborhood to check out. Coyoacán as well, which is where Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo actually uh, lived, is super cute. You mean Frida Kahlo? Yeah. Is that what I said? <laughs> yeah, but in Spanish, it's like hard. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I'm like, wait, you mean Frida Kahlo, Yeah, right? Frida Kahlo. Like, I can't say it in a Spanish <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so they lived in Coyoacán and... and um, that's that's a very that's I really love that neighborhood and and you can visit where they lived and you can see like Trotsky Trotsky also Trotsky was actually murdered in Mexico City so wow. the last place that he lived like his house the he the house that he was murdered in is there and you can you can visit it and I mean if you're a history buff like you might enjoy it uh, there's also um, neighborhoods like La Roma which are really nice uh, and La Condesa as well but but I mean there's there's just tons. It's such a huge city, uh, and it's very diverse in its kind of areas. Mm-hmm. Something that people don't know is that Mexico City is one of the places with the most density of museums. I have heard that. Yeah, I heard tons. that it, there's like so much. Yeah. To so, see. so if you're into museums, <laughs> if you're into art, like there's so much yeah. of that going on. There's also just like the history runs so deep and is so interesting. And there's there's pyramids like the the big pyramids. Uh, just like about an hour drive away, but even in the in the centro in the historical core, there's there are also pyramids that yeah <laughs> like there. So I mean, don't picture like one that's still standing, but that was where that was where the pyramid of the city was. And when the Spanish came, well, this was all on a lake too. Like Mexico City was built on a lake, Whoa. and and the the Spanish came and kind of filled the lake and and 
destroyed the pyramids and kind of built um, cathedrals and, and stuff on top. But like decades ago, like the it was uncovered that the remnants of this like major pyramid were still right there, and it was just kind of found right there. And so you can still visit like the the base of it, and there's a whole museum set around that, which is really cool. Cool. Um, we do want to go visit like I don't know what they're called, the bigger ones that are outside of Mexico. So yeah, yeah, Teotihuacan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're gonna try to take the local bus. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, last time I was there, I got sunstroke. It was really bad. There's like not a, there's no shade. Like try not to go on the hottest day. If you're going around October, November, you should be okay. But I went like right in the summer, and it was just like so sunny and so hot, and I was just like hallucinating by the end. We're also pretty notorious for like first thing in the morning, so we'll probably go at like five a.m. Nice, nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's cool. It's a cool spot, and like if you're into history, the, like the archaeology. Uh, anthropology museum is super rad it's mm-hmm. really big though like you want to yeah it takes a lot like you probably won't see it all yeah um food food, food. <laughs> yeah food i'm gonna eat street tacos the yeah. entire time yeah i'm so excited you'll never be you'll never want to pay for a taco here again though once you see the price difference you're like i'm not paying ten dollars for a fucking taco this is <laughs> this is 50 cents back home don't try to fool me <laughs> are the tacos here as good I mean, they're different. Like, it depends. So, uh, street tacos, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I spent all of high school eating. And, and it's just, like, uh, a corn tortilla and, and meat, and then you'll put some lime on it. And mm. they're very flavorful, but they're, like, I hear, hear people kind of, like, dress them up with a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. Whereas, like, they're, like, street tacos are very simple back home. Uh, having said that, there's there's definitely this resurgence of, like, a more elaborate Mexican food uh, that's that's happening and and I mean I, I've, I'm vegan so uh, I became vegan after leaving but now that I go back I, I've noticed a, a really big vegan and vegetarian scene kind of emerging in Mexico City uh, mm-hmm. which is super cool and and there's this one restaurant which I have to go to every time I go uh, which is this it's like <laughs> it sounds really weird but it's so good it's kind of this like Asian Mexican vegan fusion wow. and they're t- they have like these amazing like kimchi tacos and like kind of all these things which are just like so so tasty uh, it's called oh I don't know if I should say the name and reveal reveal to all the people you can tell me <laughs> it's like such a small like place <laughs> I don't want it to be packed and I won't be able to go <laughs> uh, but what's cool about Mexico like something to note about Mexican food is that it's actually quite regional like Mexican food changes very much from region to region, uh, but in Mexico City you can find um, it's very cosmopolitan, and you can find food from from all Mexican regions, which is which is cool. Um, so I try and keep your eyes open to to diversifying kind of what kind of food you're you're getting. Mm. Um, yeah, um, yeah, we're, yeah. Those those are kind of my insider tips. Is that a good amount? Of what about tips? markets? Oh yeah, markets. Yeah, markets are big. Um, there's one that I go, uh, which is called La Ciudadela, which is uh, around-ish the, the centro as well. If you go on Saturdays, I think it's Saturdays, they have uh, this kind of big salsa dancing in the park thing that happens. Wow. And it's like all these very elderly people who go and meet and they have like a band and they, they dance like salsa. <laughs> and it's just the cutest ah! thing. It's so great. I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um I think you you would want to go 
like the late morning okay. to catch that. Yeah. But La Ciudadela is a cool, cool market. Um, but that's like that's like artisan market kind of thing. But I I would recommend if you can to to go to um, flower markets and and fruit and vegetable markets and to just like really get go into those. Uh, those are just bustling with with smells and colors and and they're they're kind of my favorite places. Do you mm-hmm. dance salsa? Uh, it's funny. I thought I thought I danced salsa fine, I, and <laughs> uh, and I mean I never like formally learned or anything. But at parties and stuff, like you, you just kind of whip it out, and it's just the <laughs> thing that you do. And uh, and then I came here, and my partner at one point was just like, oh. she she was very nervous about going to Mexico because she's like, oh like if we start like if somebody asks me to dance, I'm not gonna know how. It's gonna be terrible. <laughs> so she's like, okay, let's sign up for salsa classes. Uh, you'll lead, and I'll follow. And fuck, I, sorry, I'm sorry, but it was just, like, very upsetting. Like, I feel like I got worse, you know? I, like, I feel like I had rhythm, and I had things, and I went to the salsa class, and all of a sudden, they were just like, no, like, you're doing this wrong, and you have to, like, and they were just, like, stiffening me up, and now I'm just like, now I just can't do Did it anymore. Did you drop the line where you're like, I'm from Mexico? <laughs> like, stop it. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but she, like, she kept, like, correcting, like, my... I, and I just started overthinking it, and so now I've just overthought it, and I've lost my flow, and Aww. I feel like I've totally lost it. But somebody was telling me that that's okay, because there's actually two kinds of salsa. There's, like, there's a kind of Cuban-ish salsa, uh, which is very flowy, and which is what kind of I, I learned to dance. But apparently there's this whole salsa movement that, that is born out of L.A., uh, which is more structured and more, like, uh. stepped step heavy and that's kind of what people are teaching in studios here right. so that made me feel a little bit better but I'm still a little bitter <laughs> it should just be about flow and like having fun I know I know <laughs> it's very upset I stopped going we went to two classes and I was like that's it I'm done <laughs> I'm done with this <laughs> when I was in Cuba um so you stay in like Casa Particulars there so it's like a homestay, mm-hmm. and every family we would stay with, like, so friendly. And this one family, the wife kept telling us, like, oh, my husband, like, he's the best salsa dancer in this town. And she kept saying <laughs> it. So eventually one night, like, we had dinner with them, and we were like, okay, well, like, you have to show us the salsa. Like, you keep saying he's the best <laughs> salsa dancer. We have to see it. And this guy gets up and is dancing with his wife and then pulls us up, and we're dancing with them, like, I'm dancing with him, my friends with his wife. And I was like, wow, like, I can dance salsa. <laughs> because this guy was, like, oh, so, yeah. he could lead so well that I was just like, I don't even need to do anything. Like, mm-hmm. no, if you have a I probably lead. look terrible, but <laughs> I thought I could dance salsa. Oh, if you have a strong lead, you, you don't need anything at all. You'll just, like, stand there, and they'll make you look amazing and feel fabulous for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, my last question. How do you feel about winter and snow? <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, like, I try to be chill about it because, you know, it it lasts a really long time, so I might as well enjoy it. Um, There's something, there were times, like, Montreal was worse. (laughs) I know. Toronto. I always, okay, because I've lived in Montreal as well, I always get really frustrated with people when they're like, I can't go out today in Toronto because there's, like, two centimeters of snow. And I'm just like, I went to school every day, and there was, like, three feet of snow. And no one believes it. Like, there were days, and, and, and like, McGill never gave us a school, a, like, a snow day, like, no. in the years that I was there. There were days, like, the bus weren't, the buses weren't moving, and still, it was like, no, you're coming into this exam. It's like, how? Tell me how. But I, I think the only times where I really, really doubted, like, my decision to move here was just, like, the days that were so cold that, like, 
just like your eyelashes were frozen and like your nose hairs are frozen and just like like you can't breathe like it hurts you're like why am i here yeah but mostly i think a big thing for me was realizing that i needed multiple sets of clothes like in Mexico City, like, there's, there's seasons aren't really a thing. Like, there's dry season, and then there's rainy season. But even rainy season, like, it, it rains an hour a day, and, like, it's kind of over. Like, it rains really hard, and it's done. Yeah. And so this idea that I needed more than just Converse or more than a few, like, I don't know, that, that like you had, like, a summer closet and then a winter closet yeah. just blew my mind. It's like, what do you mean you have two closets? It's so true. <laughs> I never even thought about this, yeah. but everyone does. Yeah. And there's, like, a day that you're, like, oh, I'm bringing out the summer closet. I know. Now. That, when my girlfriend first told me that, I was, like, I just laughed. I was, like, what do you mean? Like, you're bringing out your summer clothes. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing my shirts and just layering. What do you mean you're bringing out your summer clothes? What does that mean? And she was just, like, oh, no, like, this is a thing. It's a thing we all do. <laughs> so now it's been eight years. Do you have a summer and a winter closet? No. <laughs> no. I just, that means more shopping. I'm not a big shopper. <laughs> no, I can't handle it. Uh, I mean, you saw me coming in just, like, in my vans. Like, it's, like, it's like still icy out there. I'm just, like, committed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Annabelle, for coming on the pod today. Um, I feel like we had a great convo. Nice. Anything you want to share? Tell us about Connection and where people can find it. Ooh, yeah, my plug. Um, yeah, so Connection is really, really new. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's this project I've been working on that, as you mentioned at the beginning, explores kind of um, how we can be more intentional about um, yeah, connections and relationships, and not just relationships to other people, but relationships to self and relationship to place, which is probably something that, that you've noticed comes up a lot for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, it's based around a video series. So I, I released the first series on the topic of embodiment, and that's all available online on my website, which is connectiontoday.com. Except connection is spelt uh, the French way, so it's C O N N E X I O N. So that's connectiontoday.com, and then uh, on on Instagram you can also follow me. It's connection today, and we actually have a Kickstarter going right now for the next season, which is going to be bigger and better, and I'm super excited about it. It's on the topic of play, um, so that will be super fun, and and uh, will be coming out sometime around June. So if you want to donate to that, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, you can find that also on the website. I'm going to leave all those um, URLs and Instagram handles in the show notes. Um, Thank you, Katie, our producer. You're great. (laughs) (laughs) Katie gives me like such confidence, as I'm sure you've noticed. Yeah, no. (laughs) I'm always looking at Katie for direction. So, like, she's the unseen hero in this podcast. <laughs> um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at, at alpacamybagspod. Uh, you can go to our website as well, which is www.alpacamybags.ca. Reach out to us. We love hearing from you guys. And you can, like, tell us anything if you disagree with something we've said or if you, like, want to add something to something we've said. Please reach out and do so. If you like what you're hearing, please let us know by reviewing the podcast and remember to subscribe while you're at it. Tune in every other Wednesday for more episodes and I hope you all get to unpack your bags soon. Until next time.